I'm Danny Clawson. I've uh, been with uh, Rolling Hills for the last three years. I've been in the home building industry for the last 27 years and the last three and a half years here in Nashville. In 2005, we had, my wife and I had a daughter. And at that point, um, we started feeling led to be become part of a church to start seeing things differently than the way we were kind of living our life. Once I accepted Christ and offered, I asked him into my life, then that started the seeking uh, of the truth of what I needed to hear. And, and over the last 12 years, it's just been a true journey. My way of leading since becoming a Christian, um, I never really had a lot of grace for people back uh, back in that day. It was it was my way or the highway kind of thing. I was very quick to, to write you off if I needed to. Through the years of just uh, being with some good godly leaders that have led me in the right direction, but understanding truly what uh, the Bible says about leading and how to lead a family is really no different than how to lead your business. Using my platform at the office to, to lead in a godly way is really leading by example. I pray for a lot of wisdom and knowledge to lead my family and to lead my team in the way that he wants them to be led and not necessarily in the way that I want to lead them. The most significant thing that I've done to be a godly leader is to be obedient. Um, when you're not a godly leader and you do not know what scripture has to say or how Jesus wants you to lead your life, then it's hard to lead that way. Honesty was always has always been a big part of my life, but honesty um, in the absence of compassion was pretty cruel at times. So being able to lead now as a believer and understanding, again, aligning myself with how God wants us to lead, um, offering grace, uh, forgiveness, compassion, um, loving, has uh, made a big difference in how I lead my team. So Danny um, attends our Nolansville campus, um, and he's actually on the team of folks that are actively looking and pursuing um, a permanent home for that campus because they, like us, they meet um, actually not on a college campus, but in an elementary school every Sunday morning. And they're a set up and tear down campus. And so they roll in at 6 a.m. and get everything set up so that they can do a couple of services at Nolansville Elementary School um, and then roll out every Sunday um, by 12 or 12.30. And, and what we are hoping and praying that God would provide under Danny's leadership and other people that are investing in that campus, um, a permanent location for them in the Nolansville area so that they could have a 24-7 home, um, a home to be in, to meet in, to offer Bible studies in, to do kids and student and family ministries in as a hub all the time. And we're actually praying for that for this campus as well. Um, so we're on a timeline with Belmont University by March of 2020 for us to be out of this space and to have a permanent home. And so we continue week to week and prayer to prayer, have, have more opportunities to seek God's best for us. Um, this is a fantastic room. But we get it on Sunday mornings for about four hours. And so what we're praying and asking for is that God would give us a home base, um, a base where we could meet people and offer ministries and out outposts and help a community every single day of the week. Um, in fact, we'll have services uh, Monday through Friday, every single day at 7 a.m. That's just kidding. Um, but we would have a lot of opportunities to continue to reach a community and to have a home base and a hub um, to minister well in this area. And so we're praying and asking that God would provide. And I think that we're on the cusp of something that we're excited to share this morning. Um, as we continue our series on David, um, I have a question for you. We, we're continuing to ask, how did we get here? How did we land in this part of scripture? How did Israel on this part of their journey land in this junction in life? 
gospel. How did we get here? How many of you um, are, are, are people who often forget things? You don't have to raise your hands. Like that would just be, like I did see a few hands out there, way to go. Like you forget things from time to time. I do. Um, and, but there's a, a, a difference between forgetting where you put your keys and forgetting your wife's birthday. Um, I can say with certainty that I've never done that, right? I've never forgotten the day that she was born. And some of you, like I didn't want to put anybody in the doghouse this morning, but some of you, um, maybe the wives are kind of elbowing the husbands. Yep, see, he's never forgotten his wife's birthday before. And you're sitting there going, oh no, why did you bring that up? I was hoping that she forgot. Um, At least if you do forget a birthday, I highly advise you to forget one that's like, um, there's just a prime. Do not forget one that's divisible by five or 10. Like those are the really special ones. And so if it's like 40, 45, 50, 55, some of you are looking at me thinking I will never get that old. If it's 20, 25, 30, 35, like just celebrate those real big time. But if it's 27, you know, you can forget that one too. It's not as big of a deal as the ones that are divisible by five or 10. People forget things. Um, they forget um, appointments. Now that's a scary one. Um, have you ever gotten that, that phone call or that text message from somebody that's like already at the place that you're supposed to meet and it says this, hey, I already got us a table. And you're thinking, oh, a table where? <laughs> because, and you're thumbing through your calendar really, really quickly and then going, oh no, this has happened before in my life. And I think it may have happened before in yours. Um, we forget things. And scripture is really clear on what this is and what it means for us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 12. God has just given his people some really important instructions that are going to govern their entire life as a community of people, that they are to honor him, to love him, to respect him, that he is the Lord their God. And yet verse 12 comes back, that way you won't forget me when you enter the land of promise. And I read that passage of scripture, I'm thinking to myself, how in the world are they going to forget God? Like, how do you forget that you marched across a Red Sea because the water parted when Moses raised his staff and you went across on dry ground and all the Egyptians who were chasing you died? And, like, how do you forget that God all of a sudden, like, Moses hit a rock and water came out? How do you forget that you marched around the city a whole bunch of times and then some trumpeteers came in and it was a marching band and they played a song and then all of a sudden walls of a city fell down so that you could go inside? Like, how do you forget those kind of miracles? And what I understand from scripture is that there is a difference between forgetting and failing to remember. There's a difference between forgetting and failing to remember. Because I don't forget that Susan's birthday is February the 11th. I don't forget, you did, some of you wrote that down because you're going to send her a card this year. That's great, good job. Like, I don't forget that our anniversary was June 10th. Like we celebrated just a couple of weeks ago, 19 years and counting. Like I don't forget that it's June 10th, but I might fail to remember to make it important. I might fail to prioritize it in my life and make it the celebration that it always should be. I don't forget that those important moments happen and I certainly don't forget the God of miracles that made them happen, but sometimes I fail to prioritize it in my life and make it as special as it should be. The people of God were prone to forget, to forget. And to not remember as a priority and as a special occurrence and as an understanding of who he was in their lives, who God was. So I sometimes forget the difference between the books of the Bible that are first and second. Like first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians. Like I will know with everything in my being um, that there's a verse there that I can recall 
like recall and say it, but I will get so puzzled and so panicked on the edge of going, now is that First Thessalonians or is it Second Thessalonians? Same thing, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, First Kings, Second Kings, First Samuel, Second. Like it's just harder. Like I wish those books of the Bible had a more creative name. And then he's like, well, this is the book of Samuel and this is the book of David. Well, that would be a whole different thing. We've just rewritten the Bible, which is a bad thing. We should never do it. The Revelation says that there's not First and Second Revelation. There's just one. And so we want to make sure that we, I forget those moments. I forget which is which. And this morning we're going to bounce back and forth between the two. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Even though later on I'm going to start talking about 1 Samuel chapter 5, I'm going to actually begin my time in 1 Samuel chapter 8. But if you want to put that marker down on 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in 5 and 6 this morning understanding that God has a place and a purpose for us. And that this morning is about leadership. And you may not be king of a kingdom or queen of an empire, but you do have influence um, and you do have opportunities to, to be who God has created you to be and leverage the influence that he's called you to have in the lives of others. Israel, in First Samuel chapter 8, demanded a king. It says in First Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, So all of the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel. Samuel was the prophet that Eli went to sleep and Samuel heard a voice and he says, Wait a minute, um, Eli must be calling me. So he runs in Eli's room and he says, Hey, what do you need? I'm right here. And Eli's like, I didn't call you. And then it happened a second time and then a third time. And finally, Eli's like, it's probably the Lord. Go back and say, Lord, here I am. So Samuel was that prophet. Now he's grown up and this is what happened. The elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. That's where he's from. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. This is my absolute worst nightmare. For someone to come to me and say, Nick Allen, you're old and your kids don't follow your way. Like both of those, not equally. Like the one, I'm like just age with dignity. That's exciting. But the part about the part about your kids not following the Lord, um, the part about your kids not walking so deeply with Christ. So Samuel sits and here's his worst nightmare. You're old and your sons do not follow your ways. And, and then the elders of Israel followed up. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And that word rejected, if you were going back to the original Hebrew language, it literally means refused. The people couldn't reject God as almighty God. They couldn't say, you're no longer going to be God. They couldn't say to him, you're no longer going to be creator. You're no longer going to be life giver. You're no longer going to be sustainer. You're no longer going to be ruler over the heavens and the earth and the cosmos. And you're no longer going to be responsible for everything that happens in all of creation. And, and, but they could refuse to be obedient. And they could refuse to submit. They weren't saying that we're going to forget that God is real. We're just going to neglect to follow him as if he is. You're not rejecting you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king, God says. As they've done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. They didn't forget that he was God, but they failed to prioritize him in their lives. So they are doing to you, verse 8, now 9. Listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what a king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And then God gives them this series of warning and Samuel relays the message. The king is going to do this and this and this and this and this. He's going to take this and take this and take this and take this. And four times in just four verses, we read that the king is going to take. And the people say in verse 19, they refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, 
We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and go out for us and to fight our battles. And I'm looking at this moment in scripture and I'm just recounting all the moments in my life when it was really, really terrible to want something just because someone else had it. That's what Israel wanted. They, they desired what other nations have them. And so God gave them Saul. And Saul proved all of God's points with the, 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 the poorness of his leadership. But in God's grace, he offered them a do-over and anointed a better king. We've already talked about the moment when Samuel goes into uh, Bethlehem and he goes to the house of Jesse and he meets all of Jesse's sons. And one by one, they pass in front of Samuel and Samuel's thinking, well, surely this guy, he's smart, he's strong, he's of age. This has got to be God's anointed. And one by one, the Lord rejected every single one of those sons until they finally said, hey, do you have any other kids? And Samuel had to be confused. And Jesse says, oh yeah, there's one more, but he's out tending the sheep. He wasn't even good enough to come in and meet the prophet. Jesse left him outside. And he passes before Samuel and God says, this is him. Rise and anoint him. For I've chosen him to be king over my people Israel. And this was David, uh, anointed to be king. And just because he was anointed to be king doesn't mean that it was an automatic thing. It didn't mean that he all of a sudden moved into the palace and set up shop and was crowned like the king of Israel. There was a long journey ahead. He had to kill a giant. He had to continue tending his father's sheep. He had to learn how to play a few musical instruments. He had to really go in a lot of battles. He had to meet his best friend. He had to uh, escape Saul's spears as he tried to kill the future king. There was a lot of story that we've continued to go to God over and over and over over the past few weeks and say, how is it that you want us to be our very own Davids? Well, last week we discovered that Saul died. Saul's gone. Jonathan's gone. And here's David about to be the king over Israel. And even in that moment, it still wasn't succinct. There were other sons vying for the throne. It was a divided kingdom. And in chapter five of second Samuel, we read these words. Starting with verse 1, it says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd. If you're a person that likes to underline things in your Bible and you're using like the analog version, not the digital one, you can do that. Underline the word shepherd, my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. You see, he was a king over half of it before he was the king of the whole. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David became the king. The biggest problem in 1 Samuel chapter 8 was wanting to be like all the other nations because what we want is, is often not, I would say always, always, it's certainly often not what we need. What they wanted was a king who was strong. What they wanted was a king who was head and shoulders above everybody else. What they wanted was a king who came from a really good family. What they wanted was a king who was an, an, an incredible, strong leader. What they wanted was a voice that would impress all the other nations and make them back down because Saul was such a mighty king. And what they got in its place was lacking. Because what we want is not often what we need. I learned that at home with my own kids, years in kids ministry and student ministry, and now raising my own three, I understand that what we want in life is not often what we need. What Israel needed in this moment, who they needed as a leader, was first a godly, passionate shepherd 
It's not an accident that God chose a shepherd boy and made him king over his people. And sometimes I read the idea of being a shepherd and sometimes I understand the idea of being a shepherd. And I just think that it's this, it's this meek job. It's this, you're just herding a bunch of animals that aren't really that dangerous. They under, they have a reputation for not being that smart. I get it. Like just raising sheep. One time we were at the Williamson County Fair and we saw these little cowboy kids with their big belt buckles and their hats on and they were in jeans in the middle of August. And I'm thinking, oh, it's hot out here and they're, they're shaving sheep and they're getting blue ribbons because they're taking care of these animals. And I'm thinking, well, that's real neat. Those kids got blue ribbons because they shave their sheep. Maybe they're like modern day shepherds. But if you were to do the research and if you were to go to other parts of the world where shepherding is still big business, these guys are no joke. They're tough. They're strong. And we learn that when we read First Samuel chapter 17 in the passage of scripture that we were going where David was coming to the battle lines and Israel was on this side of the valley and uh, Philistines were on this side of the valley and every single day this giant comes out and he is taunting Israel and taunting the God of Israel and saying to the people to send down your very best fighter and no one from Israel would rank, rank and file and go down and fight the giant until David the shepherd boy gets and finds out what's going on and he comes to the king and he says, I'll do it. And Saul's like, you can't fight him. And David said to him in 1 Samuel chapter 17, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I let it go because the lion and the bear were bigger than me. No. He said, I went after it. I struck it. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. These, these shepherds were tough and they protected their flock. In Second Samuel chapter 7, God looks at David and says these words, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. From shepherd to ruler. And there wasn't a better pedigree. There wasn't a better resume. There wasn't a better list of credentials that David could have brought to the table. Having taken care of a physical flock, now he was going to go and lead and take care of God's flock. And, and all throughout Old Testament scripture, we're given this image over and over and over again of not just David being a shepherd, but of ultimately God being my shepherd. Psalm chapter 23, you've heard it, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want when Israel's leaders had taken them down a dark path long after David, long after Solomon, long after the good kings, and now they're in a divided nation. When Israel's leaders had taken them down deep, dark paths of doing really, really wrong things, and God looks at them in the book of Ezekiel, and he gets really, really mad at their leaders, and he says, you're bad shepherds. You're not doing a good job. You're taking advantage of the people, and you're leading them astray. And then he comes out, and he says, I myself will shepherd my people. I will bring them back together. I will bind their wounds. I will lead them to green pastures. God is saying that he himself will shepherd his people and it's all foreshadowing to the moment in scripture where we get the absolute perfect shepherd who is Jesus Christ who came out of a carpentry background but he says in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd. That his sheep know his voice and they follow him and he leads them where they need to go. When, when, when we as a people come to God and we need leadership in our lives and we need, we need, we need, we need to know what it is that we're supposed to do and who, what, who it is that we're supposed to become and how it is that we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to think and feel when we come to this word as our guiding principles in life, what we come to it as, as a, a sometimes messed up flock, a really, really, really crazy stray sheep, who just needs the loving care of a shepherd to show us the way. 
And sometimes the loving care of a shepherd is to pick us up broken legs and rest us on his shoulders and carry us around and speak softly and tenderly to us while our wounds are healed so that we can better recognize his voice. And sometimes the rule of the shepherd is to go out into the wilderness and go crazy on a lion who is attacking us. The shepherd may be meek, but the shepherd is not weak. And that's what we as a people desperately need. That's what Israel needed in a king. And that's what God in his grace, although they did not deserve it, provided for them in David, a, a passionate shepherd. But they also, in addition to that, it's in your notes this point, they needed a visionary leader. A, a visionary leader, a, a ruler who would respond to where they were and what their crisis was. In 40 years of leading, David moved and chose Jerusalem as the capital city. He unified the nation under one umbrella of Israel. He subdued all of the surrounding enemies. He set up blueprints for the temple and even created a storehouse to give funds so that the temple could one day be constructed. He ruled with grace and humility, even as we will see next week, in spite of his own sin, when he was confronted, he sought God. If you go down to... Second Samuel chapter 5, you can read more of his conquest and more of the great things that he did. But the verse that stands out the most to me is one of the last ones. As we get to Second Samuel chapter 5 verse, well, we'll just start at 25. It says, so David did as the Lord commanded him. And he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. But you could stop right there at the comma. David did as the Lord commanded him. The best rulers, the best leaders are ultimately the ones who understand what it means to follow. You've had a leader in your life. Maybe you've been this leader in someone else's life where you just thought that the rules didn't apply to you. Where someone doesn't think that any system is, is worth their time or effort because they're the man or the woman in charge. And you started to systematically kind of notice just the, the, the unraveling of their leadership and just how poorly it seemed that they led. And it really all starts with not understanding that the way to be a really good leader is to first understand what it means to be a really good follower. There was a soldier who said those same words to Jesus. Seeking healing in Luke chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, the, 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 the soldier responds and says, I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. It's the middleman and, and, and a great machine. I, I've got somebody over me and I've got people under me. The people under me, I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed because the man understood that his authority was built on the fact that he knew how to follow and he also knew how to lead. And, and the very best leaders are also always people that also understand what it means to follow. And there's a problem with following when it comes to this kind of leadership. When it comes to godly leadership in our lives, we can't follow God if we don't know what God says. We're not going to know what God says until we attach ourselves to the word of God that's been given to us. Susan and I were listening to a Gospel Coalition podcast this week, and one of the things that stood out to me over and over again was this. One of the reasons why we don't read the Bible is that we don't want to meet God. And I would sit in an audience or a crowd, if somebody had said that out loud to me, and I would say, oh, that's absolutely not me. There's another reason why maybe I'm not engaging Scripture today. There's many other reasons. And, and ultimately, we can't say that it's we don't have time, because we can make time. 
We can't say that, oh, well, we don't have the resources that we need in place. Well, we have all the resources that we need in place. I don't have to read it out of this big book that definitely weighs more than, like, I don't know, three pounds. I could read it on a mobile device. I could read it on a screen. Like, I could read it. In, like, there's opportunities to engage Scripture all of the time. Or we don't have the capacity or the capability. We are about as smart as we are, have ever been today. And tomorrow we'll be even smarter than that. We have what we need in place. It ultimately boils down to not submitting to this word as an authority in my life because I don't want to submit to any authority in my life. And when I read this word, I'm confronted with the fact that the great God of this universe intends to be in charge of me. And like my own kids or your own kids or us as kids... Or the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's not that we don't recognize him and verbally admonish him as being authoritative. It's that somehow we want to refuse to allow that, reject that in our, our, our own lives. So we, we need a shepherd to take care of us. But, but we need a, a, a visionary ruler to, to lead us. But that visionary ruler to lead us is only good as our willingness to follow him. Jesus said, my, my, my sheep, the real sheep that the father gives me, they know my voice. And they follow me. So that's what we needed um, out of David. That's what Israel needed out of David. They, they needed a shepherd. They, they needed a ruler. But ultimately... They got this bonus, this add-on that God had given them with great intentions. It's that they got this incredible, wholehearted worshiper. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 5, and then you couple that with 1 Samuel 6, and you couple that with 2 Samuel 6. You get this, this, this great story within a story about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was this beautiful, elaborate Ark that God had instructed His people in Israel when they were walking around in the wilderness that they had to construct, and it housed um, the law of God and, like, the bones and ashes. Of it was just crazy, like, and it was elaborate. And they had these incredible poles where the Levites, the priests that God had selected from the tribe of Aaron, they would carry the Ark of the Covenant wherever the people of God would go, and they carried it into their holy cities that God had provided for them in the land that He promised to Abraham. And it was a symbol in in this tabernacle, this tent of meeting where they brought worship to God. The Ark of the Covenant lived in the holiest of holy places and only the high priest would get to see it once a year and he would walk in and he would provide worship to God on behalf of the people and the sacrifice would cover their sins and it was this incredible symbol of God's power and his presence in their life. Well, that Ark was captured and it went on this series of journeys. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, that's what happened. It says there that after the Philistines, oh yeah, that's right, the Philistines, the same people that would one day send out the big giant to battle the Israelites, the Philistines once captured the Ark of God and they took it from Ebenezer to Ashad. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it by Dagon. It's one of their false idols. When the people of Ashad rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen to his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And from that simple passage of scripture, just those few verses in 1 Samuel chapter 5, you get this sentence that ought to literally govern every single part of our lives. Is that the great God of this universe refused to share space with a false God in a foreign temple. And he refuses to share space with a false God inside your heart. He's literally good at all of the things, but one thing he never set out to do was to share. His authority, his rule, his place. You will not forget who he was. You will not forget who he is. You will not fail to remember his permanent place of priority in your life. And so people of Ashad, they wanted that ark out of there. They thought, this is, this is ruining the city. And so they sent him to Gath and then to Ekron. And then ultimately they wanted to send him back to Israel. And if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 6, it eventually lands in the house of a guy named Abinadab. It's guarded by his son Eleazar. Like his appointed job was to literally for the next 20 years to, to guard the ark of the covenant. It's an interesting story. If you go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 6, like the people of Philistia, they didn't know what to do and they wanted to send it back. And and some of their sorcerers said, well, if you're going to send the ark of God back, you better send it with some presents. Like you better send them some gifts so that they receive it so that, so that this plague that's come on our nation goes away. And like, well, what gifts do we send? And so they fashioned gold tumors. That's right. And gold rats. Like literally, they sent the ark of the covenant back to the people of God with golden tumors and golden rats that's what's on your christmas list this year right there like like everybody's gonna be looking for it like little gold tumors like little gold rats like that's just the most bizarre gift but they sent it back as a symbol saying hey we want these tumors and these rats that have plagued our nations we want them to to go back to israel with the ark of god's covenant that came here and so they send it back and it lives there for 20 something years the ark of god's covenant is always a precious symbol to the people And, and it ought to be a precious symbol to us too it's It signaled God's presence. It illustrated God's power over God's people. You know, ultimately, that's what we have Jesus for. That's what we have his word bound up in books for. That's what we have the presence of a congregation of people who trust in the Lord for. All three of those things, Jesus in your life, the the scripture in your heart, and the people of God surrounding you ought to signal God's presence, and they ought to ultimately illustrate God's power over God's people. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is is literally leading and leading well, but he determines that he's going to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jarim, where it's been stored for like 20-something years in the house of Abinadab, guarded by Eliezer. He's going to bring it into the holy city. And so he gathers all these able-bodied men, and he he, he sends them out to Bala and Judah, and he's going to bring, they're going to bring up the ark of God. It's called by his name. It's going to be, it's going to be like a parade, like a special celebration, like the 4th of July. And then this is what they did. They set the ark of God on a new cart 
and brought it from the house of Abinadab. I mean, you read that detail and you think, well, that makes sense. It's a big box. It's probably real heavy. But the problem with that was that in the book of Numbers, God had told the people, hey, don't put the Ark of God's Covenant on a cart. The Levites are to carry it. And there were loops all around the edges of it. And they would stick these giant poles made of acacia wood inside of it. And the Levites would literally pick it up. And I, I picture like an old school movie with like Cleopatra and these men walking in and they're carrying on a big like, I don't know, platform that she's like, that's the Ark of God's Covenant. They're walking it in one by one and it's sacred. So right there in the middle of the parade, there's this thing that happens. It says in verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor, like if you go back to verse 5, there's all kinds of music playing, like castanets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums. I don't even know what a sistrum is, but it's probably a great instrument. Maybe we have one today and we just call it something different. I don't know. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, who's another son of Abinadab, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because one of the oxen who was pulling the cart stumbled. Poor guy, just clumsy ox, stumbled, the ark kind of wavers. And, and, and so Uzzah reached out to take hold of the ark of God because you don't want it to fall off the cart. The Lord's anger, verse 7, burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And we read these verses and we're like, oh my word, that's such a terrible story. He was just trying to help. Sometimes helping hurts, but that's a different story for a different day. Like he was literally just trying to help, but he was helping in a system where the people of God had already been disobedient and were doing things their way. And it was almost offensive in the moment. For Uzzah to have supposed... The Lord needs me. Spotter's ready. I got this ark. It's not going to fall off of the cart on my watch. I got this. How dare we ever approach God's gracious throne with the attitude of like, I'm here, God. You can rest easy. I got this. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we feel so necessary When the great God of this universe has never and will never need the likes of us. And while we are invited by his grace to serve and play a part and take on a role in the story, we are never the star of the show. So as I lost it that day, as a powerful reminder that we are not holy on our own. And the great God of this universe does not need us the way that we think he does. So David was angry and scared and nervous. And in verse 9, it says he was afraid. He said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? So he was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David, Jerusalem. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. Can you imagine being Obed-Edom in that moment? Wait a minute, you're bringing the ark over here? I heard about what happened in Ashad. I heard about what happened at Ekron. I heard about what happened at Gath. And now I heard about what happened to Azah. Kids, don't touch it. You know, like this moment is like, it's like you walked into a Kirkland's with your children. You're like, don't touch anything. Because I was always told, you break it, you buy it. In this case, you break it, you die. Like, it's a really scary moment. And so Obed-Edom is like, what's going to go on? But apparently... people of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, it was there for three months. And in verse 11, it says, the Lord blessed him and his entire household. There's a difference between Uzzah and Obed-Edom. I think one of them forgot his place and the other one remembered who the Lord was. 
And that remembrance turned into a blessing. And so, of course, David is like, hey, verse 12, the Lord has blessed the house out of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark, did you catch that? They did it right this time. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. He's like, we're not going to leave any stone unturned. We're going to do exactly what we're supposed to do along the way. Y'all take six steps. We're going to sacrifice it until something got to the God. You're good. We're going to tell you how great you are. And then wearing a linen ephod, just this linen undergarment, this, this, this symbol of holiness and purity, says David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. That word might is the the Hebrew word oz. And it's the same word for physical might and, and personal might. You see, the same oz that it took for David to kill the lion and the bear and I guess the tiger too, oh my, like to kill the animals that attacked the sheep of his father's flock was the same might that he brought as an act of worship before Almighty God. The same power and might that he had tapped into to beat the Philistine giant and the armies that surrounded God's people was the same effort and might that he brought before the Lord that day in dancing. And I don't know what, what move it was, what fortnight, what flaw, like I don't know what I don't know what the choreography was that day, but I know he gave it his all. It's from the Hebrew word root that means to make strong. We talked about men a few weeks ago because we're on Father's Day and that just seemed important. And it doesn't matter if we talk about men or women today. Let's just talk about people, maybe Americans. We've been a nation since 1776, so we celebrated that this week. So maybe we'll just talk about might for a minute. Because we, we feel pretty mighty. We feel like we've got all the O's that we need and that we've been strong as a nation. And, and what, regardless of what political lines we draw in this room today to know a time in our nation's history when we might have been stronger than we are today and maybe some feel that we're stronger than we were back then, that doesn't matter. We've tapped into a lot of O's throughout the generations of, of being a nation. And here's what we have to know about that word because it's not just physical power. It's not just personal power. It's something different. And there are moments in my life when I bring God a, a certain level of physical O's, but then hold back and clench my fists and put my seat in the chair when I'm talking about the personal, the emotional, the spiritual O's, and they're the same. When I was first a youth pastor in Charlotte, North Carolina, there was this kid that lived out on a farm and his parents had a lot of animals and his name was, I'll literally tell you the whole name because it's kind of fun to say, Barry Clyde Walsberger. Clyde was a family name. His parents wanted to name him Barry, Barry Clyde Walsberger. He had a brother named Adam. Barry's a firefighter now, and I just, I don't know of maybe a a stronger, tougher kind of job that a dude could have. But when he was 14 years old, he used to stand in a youth group worship service, and he would sing louder and prouder, and his body would be shaking like he was coming out of the seat, and, and the hand would go up, and the heart would be open. And this little kid who liked to play outside and wanted to live on a farm and one of the strongest kids we knew was also the loudest worshiper we had. I told him one day, I said, Barry, man, I hope you don't quit doing that because I had seen it happen far too often. I had seen the 14-year-olds that passionately love Jesus turn into the 16-year-olds who were too cool for school. 
and the hands that were raised and, and exuberant as they praised, regard, not caring what anybody else around them thought, turned into the hands that sat on the back row and put in the pockets and dug it down because I can't really participate. The loud voice that didn't care how out of tune he sang, he was never going to be on a stage. Let me tell you about Barry Clyde Wasberger. Not Nashville bound, I promise. It didn't matter. He sang loud and proud. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, right? I've seen the, the joyful noise unto the Lord turn into the barely there whisper. Because we grow up and we turn manly and we get tougher and we tap into the, the physical O's more than we do the spiritual O's. Not David. This mighty warrior, this, this, this tough shepherd, this gritty guy who nobody could beat down, was literally dancing in the street. If you continue reading in the passage of Scripture, his, his wife, Saul's daughter, was a little embarrassed over the whole thing. And David says these words. It, verse 22, I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Humiliated is where we get the word humble. It didn't matter. He was going to give everything that he had. From that story about the Ark of the Covenant and Uzzah and Obed-Edom, I think we get this really important truth. This, this, this truth that needs to govern our lives and to be a part of who we are. It's that yesterday's error, and we've made them, oh my goodness we've made them, doesn't have to define today's endeavor. The mistakes I made yesterday, Uzzah, Ashad, Dagon, Gat, like all the stuff that happened yesterday doesn't have to govern today's endeavor. So many people have allowed their sin in life to discount them from being true worshipers of God and to give God their absolute all. Well, what will the people say if they see me, this guy, worshiping God that way, leading that ministry that way, signing up to serve in that way, going on a mission trip that way because my life has been too sinful and my errors have been too great. Yesterday's errors do not have to define today's endeavors. And if God is calling you to step forward as a leader, then step forward as a leader. If God is calling you to be his servant, then step forward as his servant, regardless over what happened yesterday. You want to know why? Because you're a worshiper. You learn a lot from these stories and from David, the Ark of the Covenant comes into the street. The Ark of the Covenant that had just killed a guy three months later had blessed a guy. The Ark of the Covenant who's literally coming into the street and David is dancing wildly before God, giving him all he has in the presence of all God's people. And I, I'm just reminded of this important truth that the way that we worship is not just an expression. Like we know that, like this, this, it's not just an expression. How loudly you sing is not just an expression. It's not just an indication of how good of a singer you are. Like the, the moment when you're literally, and not just in this room collectively together as we all sing the same songs at the same time, but out there in this world, the, the, the way that you worship is not just an expression of the way that you love God. It's an indication of how mightily you love God. And so is it this, this all out, I don't care who's watching, like dance, like nobody's looking at me, kind of humiliation, like it doesn't matter. I'm going to bring to God whatever I have with all of my might. Are we holding back? The way that you worship is not just an expression in the moment of telling God, hey, I love you. The way that we do it is also an indication of how much we love him. 
we already went to Luke chapter 7 when we talked about this soldier that came to Jesus and said, hey, I too am a man under authority. But Luke chapter 7 goes on and gives us another story of a woman who comes into a house where Jesus and his followers were gathered together and she takes this really expensive bottle of perfume and she breaks it and she literally cries at Jesus' feet and she washes him and wipes it up with her hair. And somebody's indignant at the moment because it's just such an expensive bottle. We could have sold that and used the money to do something really nice for somebody else. Like they're just not getting the picture. And Jesus looks at them and says, I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The way that we worship isn't just an expression of loving God. It's an indication of how much we love God. How much we remember who he is in our lives and are willing to put him first place in it. We're going to continue. We're going to sing another song. Um, and, and I started to do this because worship is, is not just singing. And I, I hate that we sometimes get into the mode where we think, oh, worship, that's singing. Worship is the way that we live our lives. And it's, but, but, but I want us to be a people who live our lives so mightily in the workplace, so mightily in the home, so mightily in the church house, so mightily in our own private time to where our worship is. all out sacrificial expression and also an indication of just how much we love God because we know how much we've been forgiven. We know the ways that we've been led and we know the desire that we have to follow. Our daily Bible reading is an act of worship. And it's an incredible act of submission to the authority of God in our lives, telling him that we will never forget what you have done for us. What made David a great ruler is that he was first an incredible shepherd. And what made David a great ruler is that he, he knew how to follow. He did everything that the Lord commanded him. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, what made David such a great ruler is that he was such a mighty O's worshiper of God and refused to be the guy who forgot or failed to remember or ever neglect God's place of prominence in his life and who he was in response. A lot of great stories from two books of the Bible and a bunch of different chapters today. But, but, the, but the real question for us is, how mightily do you worship? And how readily do you submit? And how eagerly do you seek to, to know and to follow who this God is? So Father, as we continue our time of worship, as we sing songs, I pray that we would be a people of Second Samuel chapter five verse or chapter six verse twenty-two. That we would become about as undignified as we've ever been. That we would be willing to be as humiliated as we've ever been, because you're worth it. That we would never dare to be a people who assume that you need us and that somehow you need the kind of praise that we're gonna bring today or the kind of life that we're gonna live tomorrow, but ultimately as an act of worship, we're desperately declaring how badly we need you. We need your love. We need your leadership. We need your blessings. We need your truth. We need your provision. We need your help. And so we want to be a people in spite of the fact that we're in charge of so much in this life. We are. You've placed us in authority over so many areas. But God, we desperately need your authority. We need to know what it means to be your follower before we're ever going to lead somebody else. And ultimately, what that transitions us to is to be a people who know how to sacrificially and eagerly and passionately worship you. It's in the name of Jesus.
who's the best shepherd. It's in the name of Jesus, who is our incredible Lord and ultimately our Savior that we pray and ask blessings on this time.